Good morning, everyone. This is what I call the in-between day, and that's because it's in between my anniversary and my wife's birthday. So it's my, my, my one day of peace. And I am back with Mikey D with the Dose of Diamond here on Office Hours. We have Dr. Eric Cole, founder of Secure Anchor, secure-anchor.com. Welcome to Office Hours, Eric. Pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. You know what's so amazing, uh, Mike, is that if somebody would even have told me before the pandemic that we would have a show office hours, a TV show office hours, which, by the way, uh, is launching uh, October 15th, if I'm correct, on Bloomberg, uh, the first late night entrepreneur show, but that we would have a doctor that has written a book about the cyber crisis, about cybersecurity, and he has a cooler he has a cooler studio than me or you. I look like, you know, I'm in beach prison here with the bunk beds behind me. Um, this world is all backwards and upside down. Like, what the heck is a doctor doing with such a cool studio? Uh, that's my first question. So uh, getting my doctorate was one of my personal goals in life. It, it's one of those, has it helped me in my career? Maybe, maybe not. But, but, but I'm sort of that unique mixture of geek and entrepreneur. I, I have a simple philosophy is most of the geeks I know have brilliant ideas and they give them to other people and they make other people rich. So to me, you might as well take advantage of your own ideas. And, and on my wall, I wish you could see it. I have a big sign that says, if you don't pursue and build your dreams, other people will pay you to build theirs. I like you know that's uh, my favorite entrepreneur uh, Ray Kroc, who actually w was such a great entrepreneur that he bought the right to be called the founder of McDonald's, where everybody, especially in Southern California, knows the McDonald brothers founded McDonald's. <laughs> it's ridiculous, <laughs> Mike. You got something? Yeah, but I love what you just said. Is if you don't have a plan, then you work for someone else's plan. So you got this brilliant book called. Uh, Cyber crisis, right? Can you jump in? Because I lot of I it's a space that I really understand either. Because there's so much going on in the cyber world. So can you jump into that? And, and and what are the tools you give to help people avoid getting hacked and all these problems? Absolutely. So my whole thing in cybersecurity is you got to make it simple for people to understand. If I go in and I start talking about reconfiguring firewalls and IDSs and false positives and, and everyone's like, what the heck is going on? And, and nobody listens. So what I realized is the reason why we're having so many breaches and the reason why there's so many compromises is there's a communication gap. Security people are speaking one language. Business folks are speaking another and nobody's learning the other person's language. So one of the things I find as a really good entrepreneur, you need to look a couple of years out. So about 18 months, two years ago, I looked at everything that was happening, what was occurring, and I said, mid-2021, we're going to be in the midst of a cyber crisis. We're going to have problems. Companies are going to get breached. There's going to be million-dollar ransomware. Essentially, when I wrote this book, I predicted what happened over the last six months and essentially put together a business book so executives can understand cybersecurity with simple analogies and simple examples. It, that truly is a gift. You know, uh, Coach Holtz, the head coach of Notre Dame, once said, right, it's not what I say, it's what you hear. And in order to understand what people are hearing, you have to meet them where they're at. Uh, you know, I have a law degree and I felt that, you know, I received a lot from getting educated in the law. But the one thing that I learned from going from law school to technology was that language is used as a barrier so that you can increase the amount that you're paid. 
See, like if we call things HTML, it makes it very, very, you know, mysterious and valuable, you know, and, you know, all these fancy words when, you know, look, it was coding. And, uh, you know, I think it's really important to listen uh, to what the reader is listening for. One of the other areas that the reader is listening for is their family security. Uh, in cybersecurity, as much as business is an issue, uh, you know, identity theft uh, is not also understood. People feel, you know, on a wide variety of range of what's going on. What is your secret to transcode, quote unquote, hyper-technical language into something that an eighth grader can understand? It's, it's very similar to what you said. And, and to me, it's switching a phrase that we all heard growing up, which it's a great phrase, but it's wrong, which is I was always taught, treat people the way you want to be treated. And the problem with that is you're different than me. So the way that I want to be treated is not the way that you want to be treated. Also, I got to tell you one more thing, Eric, because I have to interrupt because this was, I was a young executive at, at Thompson Reuters. We created Westlaw, right? It put, put legal research online before, even when my mom thought the internet was a fad. But I think it goes even farther than we're different. We treat people differently is, you know, we treat people the way we want to be treated. Most people treat themselves like shit. They're way too hard on themselves. Yeah. So we're in real big trouble when people treat other people like they treat themselves. Yeah. No, no and, and you're spot on. That, that's one of the things I've been on a journey, just a quick tangent is I realize if anybody treated my friends or my family the way I treated myself, I would kick their you know what. I yeah, mean, yeah, so, yeah. So, so you're right. We tend to be hard on ourselves. But, but the phrase that I always use and I teach my kids is treat people the way they want to be treated understand them. So when I go in and I talk to executives or others, I always want to understand first. So I'll always ask two or three questions to see where they're at, what their mindset is, and what's going on in their life. And then I tailor the conversation based on what's important to them. But you also nailed the trick, which is make it personal. Because if I go in and I start talking to executives or managers or directors about the company getting breached and the company getting hacked, you'll get things like, oh, it's not going to happen to us, or we have insurance, or who cares? The company makes so much money. But when I look at them and say, do you realize there's a 60% chance that your 16-year-old daughter will get targeted by somebody online pretending to be another teenager? and could potentially abduct her, and you have their attention. And those are real facts. So to me, you make it personal, because the reason why I'm really in this space is to make cyberspace safe. To me, we need to end the suffering in cyberspace. And I wish we had like five hours to tell you all the stories. I mean, if you knew what was really happening, it's not covered in the news. The number of kids and families that are being ruined because of cyber attacks, that's what drives me. So to me, if I can go in and get you good habits at home and with your family, it's going to spill over into your work and every other aspect of your life. Here's that's this mind blowing. So, what would you say for parents or someone watching? What are a couple of things they can do that can help them avoid some of these problems? Because look, I, I work with addicts, and I didn't know how bad the dark web was until I was working with a kid that was getting fentanyl sent to his house from the dark web. I was like, "How are you getting this?" And I had no clue what he was doing online. I'm like, "How are you? What is this server? Where are you going?" So what's a couple of things that parents can do to make them either become aware or some tools they can use at home to help them out? 
A lot of it is really focus on paying attention and detection because I know parents will go in and they'll buy all these different apps that can go in and lock down the phone, this and that. Let me tell you something. Your teenage kids are 10 times smarter than you and anything you put on their phone, they're going to figure out a way around it. So, so that's just, that's fool's gold. I mean, that's not really solving the problem. The, the first one, which sounds simple, but is very eye-opening is follow your kids online, but follow their profiles, see what they're posting, see what you're doing. I remember I was speaking to a large event and a mom came up and she was like, Eric, I don't want to see what my daughter's posting. I I don't want to see that stuff. That's crazy. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. It's public information and you're allowing creepy people to watch and see your daughter, but you don't want to monitor and watch and see what's going on. And I I felt bad because it wasn't my intent. She actually started crying because she never thought about it from that perspective. But watch your kids. These kids are smart, but they're naive. Look at the stories. Go in. And there was a story seven months ago with all the COVID and everyone working from home. There was a guidance counselor up in Pennsylvania that was turning on the cameras on all the kids' computers in the evening when they were in their bedroom. So these are real things that are happening. And I tell you, when I go in and tell my daughter that, when I go in her room now, she has tape over her camera and she's careful of who she communicates with. So to me, the solution is monitor your kids, gain visibility into what they're doing, and then share with them the real dangers. And you'd be amazed of how quickly they're going to self-protect. You know, it, it's mind-blowing, as Michael said, of what is possible uh, in having four children and working with uh, child safety. I was one of the first board members of Child Safe Internet in the 90s. Uh, so well, well aware of, of keeping my children safe, but there's a whole nother component to what you do. Uh, you are a geek, you are a doctor, you're a technical guy, um, but you literally are in, in a studio. Uh, you're as charismatic and articulate as any of the top podcasters that I've met in, in, in you know, obviously more professional than me sitting here in my beach prison. Um, but I, you know, how have we shifted? Because this is something that I coach people on, right? I'll take any profession. I have digital hospitality with Sean Waltek, right? I, I keep telling people how important it is to capture what you do correctly, modify it, amplify it, and perpetuate it. Because even more importantly than what you do individually with the you know Fortune 500 and 50 and the individual families, this is what's needed most. Someone like you that has credibility but also has performance skills and the proper equipment in order to amplify what they're doing. You know, when did it come to you as a doctor that, wait a second, you know what? I may be a geek. I I may do this and that, but if people don't know what I'm talking about by, and and, you know, books are great, but if nobody knows them, they're not going to read them. Uh, And so having this studio and really knowing what you're doing with the proper equipment is essential. And I want all professionals that are not building their brand to realize they're diminishing their capacity a hundred to a thousand times uh, with their message being lost because they're stuck in an old school chasm. What inspired you to create this brand? To me, what it really was tapping into my purpose. Uh, I believe that everyone, when they were created, has a unique purpose on why they're on the planet. And the problem is a lot of folks, and I had this for a while, they get the P's confused. Passion and purpose are two different things. 
to me, my passions change. Right? I have different passions, but my purpose is the same. It was built into my DNA, and that's to make cyberspace the safe place to live, work, and raise a family. So once I tapped into that and realized that's why I'm here, and I want to go in and make cyberspace safe. One of my goals is I want to be person of the year, Time Magazine for securing cyberspace, right? You got you to have those big goals. And once that clicked in, it's sort of the go big or go home. And I'm like, okay, Eric, if you're going to start being on Fox and CNN, if you're going to start doing podcasts and everything else, why are you sitting there uh, and not doing it correctly? You know what I mean? And, and to me, what it comes down to is we got to be willing to invest in ourselves, we got to be willing to spend the money. When, when I talked to my team and they saw what I was going to spend on the studio, they thought I was crazy. This studio has been up for 14 months and everyone in my office says, Eric, it was the best investment you made because we have gotten so much business when colonial pipelines hit. We had CNN calling us because they said you're one of the few professional cybersecurity folks out there that actually have proper cameras and lighting. So a lot of it comes down to just getting clear about that purpose. Don't listen to anybody else and be willing to spend money on yourself before the money comes in. Because to me, it's like planting. You, you got to plant the seeds before it comes up. And so many people are like, well, I'll build a studio when I get 100K. Well, you're never going to get 100K unless you build a studio, right? We have it backwards in terms of the process. Yeah, I mean, you know that I uh, work with LoomCube, for example. They're here in San Diego, which is why I'm frustrated with Matt, our producer, because I got no LoomCube here and I look like the 50-50 bar with my lighting in the beach prison. <laughs> but you're so right. It is so important to look and to speak uh, correctly and to utilize. I can't tell you how many weird, different niche professionals have told me the exact same thing uh, about building a brand and doing it the right way that they can't even fathom the size, scope and scale of what they're trying to do. Uh, I will say one thing about passion and purpose as well. That's great marriage advice. As I sit here in dead day between my anniversary and my, and my wife's birthday, as I sit here between the two, you got to make your wife, your purpose, not your passion because your passions do change. Uh, when your family and your wife are your purpose, it also is another uh, catalyst to understand the importance of what you do. When you make your family your purpose, all of a sudden those little comments about, I don't know or care what my daughter does on Instagram becomes very different uh, in your mind's eye when your family's your purpose, not your passion. You know, you don't go to make money passionately because I want to buy things for my kids. No, they're your purpose. Uh, and I think that's really important. Anyway, uh, as always, the cyber crisis is a huge issue. Uh, I wanted to bring you on as the expert, uh, a speaker, author, uh, an incredible, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to empower the world to be happy. Uh, and you are definitely one of those people uh, in an area that a lot of people don't think about. So reach out to Dr. Eric Cole, check him out, uh, secure.anchor.com. Eric, anywhere else people can reach you? Yeah, I also have a, a podcast I do weekly called Life of a CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, but it really is general cybersecurity advice. So if you go to YouTube and you search on either D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E or just put in Life of a CISO, uh, that'll pop up. And that also gives some great advice, tips and tricks on how to be safe and secure in cyberspace. Yeah, if you want to see Life of a Sissy, uh, just Google David Meltzer. And you will find the life of a sissy. So we're good there. Thank you, Dr. Eric. Come back and visit us, man. We appreciate you. I definitely will. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right on. All right. Matt's sitting there cringing because I don't have my loom cube. And 
What was that? What's that uh, superhero guy? Uh, you know, the villain, that 50 50 face dude. That's what I'm looking like today. So, congratulations, Matt, for being a professional. Two face, that's it. Two so, we got two face here from the visit on office hours with his hero, Mike. I, I, this could be like a rehab facility. I could be lying to everybody, <laughs> all the bunk beds and everything. <laughs> all right, man. We got Robbie next. Let's bring up anybody got a penny because I got a nickel. It's Robbie Nickel, founder and CEO of Rocket Station, rocketstation.com, and probably. One of the biggest issues that we are facing today, they're the leading provider of outsourced staffing and process management, BPO, for you techies out there. Uh, Rob, welcome to Office Hours. David, thank you for having me. I uh, appreciate you you let me in on your rehab while you've got that going on, the, the bunk bed rehab. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate the time. Yeah, I need my Loom Cube, not to promote Loom Cube too much, but it, oh my goodness, we're having a good time. Anyway, um, let's start with the changes in BPO, business process outsourcing. You know, there's been huge changes uh, since COVID, obviously. Always a critical business issue, something I've dealt with, consulted for, utilizing great solutions, which is why I wanted to have you guys on uh, as a, a leader in that space. What has changed? Uh, with all the different remote workers and COVID type of uh, business issues that have risen. I'm sure BPO has been flipped, no pun, on its two faces. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, David, is that the technology, the resources, what's available from a BPO standpoint hasn't changed a whole lot the last couple of years, but companies' willingness and ability to adapt to the change is what's just accelerated so quickly. Like Zoom. Yeah, exactly, right? And so Zoom was basically a stagnant product for many, many years. And now we, as a company, Rocket Station, we use Zoom for our chat, for our video suite, and, and for our um, voice over IP phone system. It's all an integrated, and we that replaced what was Slack, Skype, and um, uh, what? Oh, Zoom for video. So we used to do three tools. We we now have one. So, but I think the biggest shift has really been the mindset of managers and leaders. I mean, you really have to adjust to this idea of managing teams virtually, which really comes down to to leading to outcomes and into productivity instead of micromanaging your teams or, or feeling like you're managing from a task base standpoint. So I, I don't think the technology has changed a ton. I don't think the resources have changed a ton, but I think that managers and leaders have had to change a lot the last 18 months. Nice. So I have a question. So you uh, you, you work with a lot of uh, VAs in uh, the Philippines, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. The VA is okay. a virtual That's assistant for those people. Yeah, that don't know. yeah. So here's a question. So when someone, because there's, there's an old paradigm, like, oh, if the person's online, I could get hacked. I'm giving away my information. So what are some things we can, first of all, open up people's minds to, to work with virtual assistants? Because I have one in India who's amazing. But so people also, because we just had the cyberspace guy, don't use the wrong VA. And then all of a sudden, you know, they get hacked and all these things. So what are some things you do to avoid those problems? Yeah, I think the recruiting process, whether it's whether it's a virtual assistant, like you're mentioning, which virtual assistant can be anybody that's in your hometown just working remotely to somebody halfway across the world, whether they're in India or Philippines or wherever it may be. 
And recruiting for those people is essentially the same. The only difference is where the interviews take place. But we we think that you should interview and do resume checks and do background screenings and drug profiling and actually call references and do the exact same process that you go through with an in-house hire. You should do that with a virtual hire as well. So as a company, we go through all of those steps. Uh, we take care of all the HR issues, and that, that's really one of the advantages of going through BPOs today is that they can really ensure safety and security and, and have the resources in place to make sure that you're getting the quality and the output that, that you deserve. But, but really, I think that it just comes down to having a process and systems in place to really go through and screen appropriately, because whether you're hiring somebody locally or halfway, halfway across the world. The systems, the processes, the tools are available for, for everyone. And so I really think it's just mostly about having a system and process to verify the information and then have clear expectations when setting up people on your team. That's great. You know, you know I talk about articulating quantitative value to exceed what we're asking for. And one of the businesses uh, that is, has an extraordinary return on investment is BPO. Uh, when you go through, especially if you're in California, uh, you know, it's not even in the same ballpark, uh, but the opportunity cost is what people worry about the most. Um, and when you're talking about the range of skills, uh, the English, uh, you know, the capability of, of speaking and understanding English. Uh, and I know uh, a, a lot of your people speak impeccable English, but beyond that, they have skills that are so valuable. How are you finding when there's such a shortage of employees there's a shortage of talent right now that has never been seen before how are you finding people that have such a wide range of skills and the ability if they're not in america to speak impeccable english yeah well we've been at this since 2013 so we're not we're not new and just because the pandemic hit and it changed things for a lot of people doesn't mean anything really changed for us and so the only thing that's really happened for us as a business is we've kind of accelerated the last 18 months. And it's because we've been doing it for so long that we were really able to just kind of help people adjust to the change. And so how do we find great teams? Well, we're screening over 4,000 applications a month. We have a huge infrastructure around recruiting and training to go through the systems and processes that I mentioned earlier. But we, we do everything from an entire resume and background screening profile through, through our HR team to then they come on to our platform, our training platform for eight weeks where they're going through profiles, skill assessment, and also doing um, upskill training because we want to know them both personally and professionally. So who are they as people, their core values? What are they really trying to accomplish? What are their goals? What's their mission? And then how do their skill sets reflect that mission. And then we try to marry those two things together. So we want to really, really understand our teams and understand what they're good at, because we're, we think that, you know, right person, right seat is an easy thing to say, but it takes a lot of work to actually make happen. So we have a really, really big infrastructure, recruitment, training to verify screen profile, and then also test people's skill sets. So you're talking about the, the different skills. I mean, a, a customer support service agent or an inside sales support is very different than a bookkeeping role or a social media admin. So as you know, somebody who's going to be client facing or interacting, you're talking about English skill. I mean, it's not just English proficiency. That is a huge thing. They need to sound like they're sitting right there in your office. 
but it's mostly about communication skills because just because they speak great English doesn't mean that they're really strong communicators and you know people like that within your own community. So it's really about not just finding these individual things like like English proficiency, it's English proficiency plus communication skills plus the core value fit for them to go be able to crush those roles. And, and it can be anything essentially done on a phone or computer, but we think you really have to put that work and have the systems in place to make sure that the right person's gonna fit in the right seat. Wow, so you started this in 2013. Did you expect it to be where it is now with virtual assistants and what's going on online? And what do you forecast in the next five years? You know, there, I'm in downtown Dallas and all these high rises and giant buildings weren't built because of virtual teams and remote team members and virtual staffs. I mean, these giant buildings exist so people can come sit in chairs and desks and fulfill these roles, right? And what's really changed is, is these companies, these managers, these people, they understand that they don't have to have people sitting in those seats to be every bit, if not more productive, than they were prior to those teams being being in-house, in office, right? And so the next step, the next change has been that, oh, we can now take overseas, whether they're in India or Philippines, like, like for Rocket Station, and get every bit the same productivity or output, if not more, than our in-house teams that are working remotely. So one of the things that I was most proud of uh, the, the last 18 months is we've got to do some amazing comparisons between our offshore teams, our teams in the Philippines, versus the U.S.-based counterparts on a one-to-one. -one. So comparing the exact same jobs from our offshore teams to whether you mentioned California, David, I mean, we're talking across the country from California to New England and the Midwest and everybody in between, Mississippi, it, it doesn't matter. Our Philippines teams are, are outperforming our U.S.-based counterparts on a one-to-one -one basis, and it's not even a, a 1099. It's not a W-2 employee. It's just a service agreement, so you have no HR liability whatsoever. So to answer your question specifically, Mike, is we've been in 2013 to 2015, 16, 17, convincing people to change their entire business model was this huge thing. It was very, very difficult to do to walk into these offices for our sales teams and convince them that they didn't need the office square footage and they didn't need the number of employees they had. They didn't need the risk. They didn't need these giant HR teams. I mean, that's the way business has been done forever. So we were swimming upstream for a really, really long time to try to get the message across and get our sales teams in to do demos and go. Now it's just things happen very, very quickly. So what I see to, to going to about your question about going forward, what I see happening is just an acceleration, the adoption of all these things that are available. It's no longer like Bank of America or Dell computers when you think of BPO and outsourcing and you get this terrible experience where you're calling somebody from India who doesn't know what they're talking about and they're just telling you to unplug the computer. Like that's not how things work anymore, right? You get high quality, college educated, competent, productive, amazing team members at a fraction of the cost with no HR liability. So what's going to happen is teams and companies are just going to continue to adopt that. And it's going to accelerate over the coming years, in my opinion. Yeah, no doubt. And I think the one other thing is engagement, uh, you know, the entitlement of, you know, living in America and all the different protections and the cost of living and all the different things that we have. 
I've been on a, you know, my, my soapbox talking about how do we get people more engaged? I do that through happiness and happy people are more engaged, purpose and passion and profitability uh, set aside. Real quickly, last question I have is on the executive uh, staffing side of things. Have you been able to, you know, outsource executive staffing or at what limit do we cap off where we can have an outsourced staff member? So the way we look at it at Rocket Station is our C-suite and very top level managers. I mean, that's why we we have an office. I'm in here by myself today in, in the office so I could could have clear internet reception for you. But we view oh, the you don't very- have a beautiful studio like me? Not, not, no, not, not at home, right? So as you can see, the sun's coming up behind me, kind of messing up the, the window here. But yeah, so we have at the very top level with our strategy and top line decision makers, we, we have that in-house, David, to, to answer that question specifically. So when it comes to, to setting budgets, strategy, vision type roles and, and top level management. So just to give you the exact numbers, we have 12 people in Dallas that are managing 110 people in the Philippines that are managing just over a thousand people. So that's the way we view more traditional, very top down type leadership where the, the more traditional org chart where, where you've got upper management that, that is essentially responsible for strategy and vision. And then you've got teams underneath you that go execute and carry out all the tasks in the day to day. That's amazing. Well, and uh, if you don't mind, just real quickly, because I got a, a, a minute here, um, the economics of that, you know, and give me kind of ballparks. I, I know, uh, you know, like four to nine dollars uh, with the Philippine outsourced people, but on those three levels, you have nor I assume nor normal compensation for your executives. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. So we our C suite ranges from. Uh, 120 ish to to mid 300s and above. Our top sales guys do similar. They're they're mid 300s and then they've got teams underneath them. Um, and then all of our teams in the Philippines are 10 bucks an hour. So you're either essentially making high six figures here for us in the states, or we outsource those jobs for 10 bucks an hour. And there's not really any in between because there's not a need for it. Those. Forty to eighty thousand dollar a year jobs, we can outsource every single one of those to the Philippines. That's amazing. Well, we appreciate you coming on, and it's always a pleasure. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Please reach out. I got a few roles I need to fill myself. So, uh, and I got tons of business to send your way. Uh, it's just an incredible business model. RocketStation.com. We appreciate Rob Nickel. Uh, give him a call. It's not even a nickel. It's free now to call. So we're perfect. Thanks so much. Talk Thank to you guys. Really appreciate you. Have a great day. You got it. Awesome. I don't think people know the benefits. Like imagine running, you know, a thousand person business like that, right? It's not only just, and that's why they can afford to pay their salespeople and executives so well. Uh, and, uh, you know, re reach out. They, they're amazing. Whether you want to work with them, for them, or through them, rocketstation.com. It is the future. And then we can use all those high rises, Mikey, to house people to, to sleep, uh, to live. The, you know, we're, we're not going to waste those buildings. Uh, they just don't have to be. They could be a co-op work and living space uh, where companies like Rob, for example, may have condos within a, a high rise where people can just walk and take the elevator down to certain floors that are co-op workspaces. But also we have better, you know, there's a huge housing shortage, especially in Texas because all these Californias, Californias are figuring out how to remote work and uh, it's they love that the tax-free Texas thing. Uh, so anyway, uh, 
I'm going to be doing a little bit of a training here. I know uh, Matt's searching for uh, our next guest. So what's our takeaway uh, for the day? You know what I love what you said, um, invest in yourself. And I remember when you talked talk to me a while back and you said that you laughed and called yourself a, an old turtle or a ninja turtle. Yeah, like, mutant, you know, yeah middle-aged mutant yeah, ninja turtle. Yeah. <laughs> But one thing I've watched you do in the last, since I've known you, is you've doubled down on being of service, having purpose, and investing in yourself, right? And that's how all these shows and all these things happen for you. So my takeaway is this, invest in yourself, have the purpose right, but, 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 but invest in yourself. I've taken that risk as an interventionist. I invested in myself, and now after 10 years of doing it, People go, well, you're so far ahead. I go, so do you know how much work I did investing in myself? Everyone said, you're crazy doing the work you do. So the first thing is invest in yourself. The second thing is have that purpose. And it doesn't matter what people or other people are saying. Remember, your, your calling from God is a conference call. It's not a conference call. It's a one-on-one -on -one call. So just follow your purpose and follow what feels right. And then just do the work. I love that. And I think I'm going to, do, you know, before I get to, to my takeaway, because we have a little bit of extra time, um, you know, on that matter, uh, you know, you when you look at making an investment in general, uh, the most overlooked and most important thing is knowing your timing and risk tolerance. You know, and people don't do that. They, they talk about, you get this all the time, is education. You know, there's this big, should I go to college? Should I? Look, I don't care if you go to college or not. What you need to do is at a young age, figure out your timing and risk tolerance and invest in yourself and get educated. Does that mean you get educated at college or graduate school or I don't know, you know, it's your timing and your risk tolerance, but people, you know, and my dear friend, Gary V, right? He, he gets misinterpreted all the time. You know, when he says, don't go to college if you're an entrepreneur, look, I, I don't say that, right? I say it's a matter of timing and risk tolerance, but Gary V educated himself. Right. All these people that dropped out of high school and college that are billionaires, that are my friends, they have spent an extraordinary amount of time investing in themselves through education. You know, they've mentored, they, they've, you know, utilized and read books. You know, I, I love Goodwill Hunting. If you've ever seen that movie, I know there's a lot of young people because Jake had never even heard of it with Matt Damon. Uh, but he, he is a janitor at Harvard and, and he has a photographic memory and he's on the spectrum and he just he's smarter than every kid at Harvard, you know, including the professors. Um, but there was some, you know, ignorant, arrogant person, because there's only ignorant, hum humble, and ignorant, arrogant people. There's some arrogant, uh, you know, ignorant kid who's, you know, just spewing and coalescing the vapors of human existence to create a viable and logical conclusion. And he goes on some soliloquy about pre-aggregarian United States economy and, you know, what post-war, you know, utilization of John Mills or whatever he was talking about, which, you know, these are the complete data BS that I learned. And he looks at me and says, bro, what you're going to realize someday, because he says, you know, uh, you know, you're going to be serving me food someday, buddy, you know, to the janitor kid. And he says, look, someday you're going to realize that all that stuff you're spewing, you could have got for $5 in over, overdue book charges at the library. And that's more true today than ever. People are going to realize if they don't take an assessment of their timing and risk tolerance, if they don't take that assessment, they won't make the investment. See, when you, you, they won't make the investment. And if they make an investment, it's going to be the wrong one. 
Uh, I, you see it all the time. Dave, should I invest in crypto? Should I invest in NFT? Should I invest in real estate? I, I don't know. What's your timing and risk tolerance? And I can tell you if you present an opportunity to me, going to high school, college, graduate school, buying a, a high rise or a farm in, in India or, or Idaho, if you present an opportunity to me and tell me your timing and risk tolerance, I have 35 years of situational knowledge and dummy tax that I paid to help align, find the synergies and supplement what you're doing to that. But, you know, it's amazing how many people just want to figure this some simple way. Should I invest in, in flipping cars? I don't know. What's your timing and risk tolerance? What does that mean to you? Uh, so that's a, a, a real good offset of, of what you're saying. Um, my, my takeaway is a, a little different. And it goes to the point of the two types of ignorant people. There's ignorant, humble people, and then there's ignorant, arrogant people. And I think in both the cyber crisis and the BPO business, which have been around a long time, uh, they're ignorant, humble people are the ones who say, I don't like you, you, you were great, right? I don't know what I don't know, you know, and, you know, please help me. And, you know, then there's the ignorant, arrogant people. Well, I don't want to see my daughter's, uh, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, it'll never happen to me or, you know, I have insurance or look, you know, and arrogance comes from two things, either narcissism of the fact that you know everything and you're in control of everything, or it comes from the other side of it. Uh, in a family situation, I found that uh, ignorant arrogance separates us as family members because certain family members care too much. So they take on an ignorant arrogance of, I know it's best for you right? Don't make the same mistakes that I've made. I know what's best for you. No, you don't. You're ignorant. You don't know what you don't know. And you especially don't know what you don't know about me. Now you can give me advice and suggestions and counsels according to your situation, knowledge, experience and love. And, you know, that's beautiful. But I want to point out uh, to everyone, you know, to please recognize ignorant humility and arrogance when we're talking about all of these critical business and life issues uh, of, you know, is it best for me to have an outsourced, you know, person from the Philippines or India? I don't know. What's your timing and risk tolerance? And let's take a position of ignorance, humility, and ask those questions. Uh, we got a couple more minutes before uh, Alan come on. I was wondering if you had a question for me, Mikey. Yeah, you know how you said that. Do you think that that is based in fear? Because when you're ignorant, right and, and that kind of stuff it's really fear-based isn't it because i'm afraid when you put your head in the sand oh, i don't want to see what they're doing online but that's your kid so so how do people adjust that to get out of that fear of like the denial like i don't want to see that like i do with, with families i'm like your son can't you see his behavior he's doing drugs no 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 not my son yeah 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 your son the, the, the drug kids keep coming back yeah but it, he said it, you know he was with a friend and they blew smoke at his face no, he's on drugs. So how do you remove that? How do you remove that ignorance, the fear? What do you do with people? Yeah, so that's a classic example of ignorant arrogance, right? Because yeah. we love someone so much, right? That we think that, you know, it's overwhelming fear that, that that's actually could occur. Or we don't want to see it. Uh, it's the barrier head in the sand. Like you said, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Um, and so many parents, especially, uh, are afraid not only to admit those, but they're afraid to tell their kids what, you know, let's take a step before this is your expertise. You know, y they're afraid to speak 
you know, I, I'm tragically open with my girls. Uh, and sometimes I pay for it uh, because they, they feel comfortable telling me everything. Right. And, you know, you should see my mom's face, who's my mentor of being a parent. When, you know, I, I said to him, hey, you know, we, we have these family dinners, which are probably the most valuable thing in my entire life. Uh, but, you know, one dinner to my three teenage daughters, I said, they're like, what's the topic for tonight's dinner? I said, heroin. My wife, like, you know, Julie, she's like, what, what do you mean? I said, I want to talk about heroin. I said, I, I want to talk about and share with you guys that, you know, if you're ever confronted with the choice to try or to use heroin, I just want to share my experience that I have never met anyone in my life that has tried heroin that hasn't either died or had a serious issue. I mean, a life threatening, just trying it. I've never met one person that, oh yeah, you know, like I've met tons of people, not to encourage people to use marijuana and it is legal in some states, but I, I you know, I have met plenty of people that have said, you know, like President Clinton, I tried marijuana, uh, you know, even though he was in denial and said he didn't inhale, but he tried it. Uh, and he ended up being a Rhodes Scholar and a president of the United States. I think you're okay trying marijuana. You know, I, I'm okay, but your choice, I'll give you the, the effects of it, but you're okay trying it. But, you know, I wanted to share that with my kids that I've never met one person this, this same way that they say, I've tried a beer, I tried a cigarette, I tried marijuana. And then I also told them that, look, the only thing that I've ever been that addicted to was nicotine. You know, I chewed tobacco and I could not quit. I left conference calls in the middle of them running to a gas station because I needed nicotine so bad. And I have not tried it, but I know that the uh, addiction to, to heroin uh, or Oxycontin is equal to or greater to than what I experienced with that. This was a valuable dinner. This is pre-work. This isn't, no, no, my kid's not on drugs. You know, I don't believe it, fear. This, this is confronting fear up front of saying, you know, I'm afraid to discuss this with my kids because they can't handle No, you can't handle it. Uh, and the same thing's true with you can't handle what you might see if you, you know, have cybersecurity correctly, if you look and see what's going on. So I appreciate the work that you do. Uh, thank you so much. We got Kevin and Alan in the waiting rings. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. Remember, most importantly, check out Mikey D. He has Diamond Life Fueled, something that I love to use. And uh, it rocks and it rolls like Mike Diamond. Get a dose of Diamond. You can find him everywhere. Mikey D, thanks for joining me. Bye, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> See ya. All right. It's time for the powerhouse, the Next Level University. Kevin Palmieri and Alan Lazarus. I got his name down. It took me 16 years to figure it out. <laughs> We're rocking and rolling. It's the greatest dynamic duo of coaching in the coaching dynamic duo. Uh, I am sitting here in my not-so-bright studio, and uh, Matthew's sit sitting there cringing because his lighting in his bedroom is better than mine in my beach house. Uh, and, and I own, a, like, a ton of Loom Cubes. If you guys aren't using Loom Cube, it's amazing, and he didn't even bring me one. So he doesn't think outside the box. We're going to teach Matthew that. Anyway, let's rock and roll. Here we go. Right on. So good morning, Dave. First question. As you know, Alan and I are very, very different human beings. At what point is it a detriment to try to mirror somebody who might have unconscious competencies that you don't, that might be playing on a, a different spectrum? Like, does it ever become a detriment for me to try to be Alan Lazarus? Hmm. So... 
we are snapshots of individuals. We are parts and parcels of all types of conscious, subconscious, and unconscious competencies. And so what we really want to do is select the pieces and parts of Alan Lazarus that you want to be. So if we, I want to have biceps like Alan, then I will ask Alan, how did you get those <laughs> biceps? If I want to have a hairline like Alan, I'm like, how do you get the hairline? Uh, so I think it's very specific because there's no one complete individual. The completeness is all of us connected together by taking our weaknesses and strengths and moving them into the pieces and parts of ourselves that make the greatest good. And so in an abundant philosophy of limitlessness and infinity, knowing that we already are connected to and through each other, we need to find what's interfering with you know, me and, and Alan's biceps so that they start looking like this when you ask him for advice, uh, right? And so you do, you know, comparison's the thief of joy, but advice, counsel, humility uh, is the uh, catalyst of joy, not the thief of joy. It's interesting that you talk about the biceps because the other day we were on something and they said like, Kev, what would you have to do to get Alan's biceps? And I said, I'd probably have to take one to two years off of the gym. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, this is when Dave Meltzer throws up the softball to Kevin and he just takes it. I appreciate it. it. I appreciate oh, it. Awesome. Awesome. That's all uh, I love it. I literally love it. Uh, Dave, so I was listening earlier to you and you said there's two types of people. There's ignorant people and there's ignorant people. Uh, one is humble, ignorant people who ask for advice from people who have results they want. And then the other is arrogant, ignorant people. How do you tell the difference as quickly as possible? Because I do feel like in hindsight, I've spent a lot of time around arrogant people without realizing it. Yeah, it's the open-ended question guide that I'm giving out to everybody. Uh, when we're utilizing open-ended questions to determine whether someone has an open mind, an open mind is indicative of an ignorant, humil humble person. Uh, a closed mind is indicative of an arrogant, uh, ignorant person. So an ignorant, humble person knows that they don't know everything and they're seeking to see what they don't know. An arrogant, ignorant person they don't know everything and they don't know what they don't know, but they think they know everything and they'll have a closed mind. So open-ended questions are the uh, tool in which I use to facilitate an open mind. Once I find an open mind, I use open and closed-ended question, leading questions to determine whether they are a sponsor or a power sponsor, a sponsor is someone that can help me, uh, find someone that can help me, and a power sponsor is someone that can help me themselves and find someone that can help me. We're so connected to one another and have the ability to outreach and to, through social media especially, to utilize and share information. Uh, the open-ended question guide that I give out, and you know, anyone listening, david at dmelzer.com, david at dmelzer.com, please get the open-ended question guide. It will change your life. It will determine whether someone has an open and a closed-ended mind, if they're humble and ignorant or arrogant and ignorant. We will be downloading that for sure. Thank uh, you. Dave, I just finished the last dance. I don't know if you saw the last dance about Michael Absolutely. Jordan. Where does that level of I must be what I can be come from? Because it's clear when you watch that, that he is different than all of these other players. And he elevates every room he's in and he takes it just to a next level of seriousness. Where do you think that comes from? Is that something in the childhood? Is that something that is just quantum? Like, how does somebody get that? Great question. Um, so number one, Tim Grover's book, Winning, also goes into this about, uh, you know, be, what winning is and to have a desire that you must be what you can be. A spirit of excellence uh, is what Michael Jordan has. It's an innate uh, quantum being that he has. What Michael Jordan has 
is what LeBron James has and other people have. Uh, they have a quantum ability combined with that desire. Uh, and so through consistent behavior, we can expand, accelerate, and grow uh, our desire. And we can. But we are limited by our, our quantum nature uh, and, and the quantum facts that exist. So, for example, um, Dan Fouts uh, may or may not have been the most talented quarterback and he may or may not have had a desire that he must be what he can be equal to Michael Jordan, but the quantum ability of his team restricted him from ever winning a championship. And you can, you can go in history and see plenty of players that are limited by, you know, look, there's no doubt LeBron James has great quantum uh, personal ability and a desire that he must be what he can be. But when he was on terrible teams, he lost, mm. <laughs> right? Uh, so I want people to distinguish what we're talking about. You can build desire. Uh, I think desire is the clearance of the interference between you and the limitlessness, the infinity that exists. Uh, and so I don't think, though, that you could be as good as Michael Jordan just because you have the desire of Michael Jordan. You would have to pick a quantum ability in a team equal to the Bulls and equal to basketball for you in order to effectuate the same type of success or winning. Uh, but desire is, is something uh, that, uh, you know, some people naturally have less uh, interference, right? I was born with a happy gene. I was born with less interference between me and, and that desire that I must be what I can be. But I also see people like Tom Bilyeu that did not have the desire that he must be what he can be until after he graduated college, or I don't think he graduated college, you know, either way, whatever he did, you know, he'll self-admit that he didn't have a desire that he must be what he can be. And he started to mature that through the enjoyment of the consistent, persistent pursuit of his potential. Good. How, so I agree with you and I know that you've met Tom and I've studied some of Tom's life as well. And it's like, I know that the beginning portion of his life, he was not pursuing his potential in hindsight in my life. Uh, I definitely always had that obsessive nature of needing to be the best at everything that I do, whether it was video games or snowboarding or basketball, or, or I always gave, and that's what Kevin was talking to me about, about my obsessive nature. And I think I've channeled that after my car accident in 26 towards good things, positive things with Tom Bilyeu. He really turned it on. I mean, later on in life. And I, I think a lot of that was fueled by pain. If you heard the story of basically his, his wife's father saying like, you're not going to be able to be with her because she expects a certain life that you can't provide. And he said that on stage and he was vulnerable while she was there. But like, why do you think it took so long to turn that on? And then how did he dial it up? Like to, to 10, you know? Yeah. Well, you don't just dial it up. Right. Uh, and so there can be events like car accidents or certain doubters, people laughing at you, making fun of you. It's called the chip on the shoulder. You know, th th those are great catalysts for people to start to enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. But you don't just dial it up. It's not an instantaneous thing. You know, I really want to, it's the Noah's Ark effect. Right. You know, you start with two, four, eight. And, and the silliest thing is when it gets really good, it gets really easy. And it's counterintuitive. Right. See, when, when it really sucks, it, it's really hard. When you're not getting the results, it's really hard. But by the time you get to the last 10%, yeah. it's not only 
huge results, exponential results, life-changing results, unbelievable results, you know, you know, and you see so many people uh, that get to this place and they're like, oh my God, I never dreamed my life is so, and I'm in that state of, of mind right now, right? Perception is your co-pilot. My co-pilot is, you know, doing the Macarena every day, uh, you know, just can't believe what he sees. Um, and, you know, moreover, it's easy. It's easy. Now, people would look at what I do productivity-wise, accessibility-wise, and gratitude-wise and say, oh, my God, Dave has no balance in his life. He works so hard, you know, blah, blah. They don't know me. You don't know me. Don't be an arrogant, ignorant person. You know, you, you don't get it. All I've done is clear and for, you know, 16 years specifically, you know, utilize my OCD, my, you know, my co compulsive behavior towards good to clear. My free will is not meant to go get stuff. It's meant to clear the interference, this allowance that, that occurs to get rid of the interference between me and what I already am, happy, healthy, wealthy, and worthy. Dave, it seems like, well, I don't want to say it seems like, but it's easier to look back and say, obviously, Michael Jordan had this quantum ability paired with um, the spirit of excellence. How do you figure out in the moment what your thing is, like what your quantum abilities are because i think alan and i have different quant uh, quantum abilities when it comes to speaking right but like we found that pretty early on i think that's something that we're both very good at how do you figure that out in the moment instead of retrospectively you can't that, that, that you cannot do it that's the problem with being young right you just can't do it early on so you have to spend time i spend an enormous amount of time wanting to be a professional football player and it took me until I was about 18 years old to, to realize, to convince myself of my quantum limitation, you know, my quantum limitation. Um, it didn't stop me from playing college football and still, you know, but it, it, it did change my perspective of playing football uh, and allowing me to do. And I see people that speak or, you know, do other things the same way. Look, <laughs> You can just keep getting better. And if you love it and there's no, you know, it aligns with your timing and risk tolerance, you know, I love to speak. And I thought I was way better of a speaker when I started than I am today. Right. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges. Here's the challenge of being a speaker. And I want, want to bring this lesson up for both of you because you guys speak. So let's say you speak for, for in front of 100 people for free when you first start. Your natural frequency will attach no matter what you, I mean, you could suck. Let's just be honest. You could suck and 10 people will resonate with what you say because they're on your frequency. Mm. 90, 90 people of the hundred will think you sucked and would like would tell everyone they suck. The 10 people will be like, Oh my God, that was great. And the 10 people will stay afterwards mm -hmm. and tell you you're great. Now the positive side of that is when you mature that frequency, those numbers add up really nicely. You know, you get on 100 stages in a year, 100 times 10 is 1,000 people, and 1,000 people telling everyone you're awesome overweighs by far the 9,000 people that tell everybody you suck, especially with social media and frequency spectrum and, you know, clarity of message. But what's going to happen is you're going to get better. And the range of your frequency, all of a sudden 15 people, then 20, then 30, then 40. The funny thing is when you, you get to like 60 60% and there you got 60 people lining up and so you know having to wait an hour to talk to you your ego your arrogant ignorance tells you I'm the best 
man, I'm, oh my God. There's still 40 people that think you suck or <laughs> you didn't resonate with. So you got to keep on doing that. And look, go and watch something I do today. The, the maturity of my coaching, speaking, my articulate uh, ability now compared to when I started, I'm way better. But I still, you know, I get in front of rooms of 10,000, 20,000. And I think to myself, geez, you know, the safety room of 20,000, there's probably about at least 5,000 people <laughs> that think I suck. <laughs> Dave, how do you objectively improve in the speaking arena when, when there's so many different opinions of what a great speaker is? Like, how do you personally stay objective in your pursuit of your own potential in that in that quantum nature? It's just strengthening your own signal, right? There are multiple. So there's three ways to become a better speaker: stronger signal. That means a stronger signal reaches more people and uh, has a bigger impact on the people that are listening. Uh, widening your spectrum so more so instead of you know only people when you start only people tune into 101.5 can can think you're good uh but you know i'm at where now anyone that's from 101.5 to 105.4 they resonate with me everyone outside of those frequencies they're static right there's interference they don't get me they don't like me or they don't mind me you know but they but that strong signal i have isn't getting through there's interference uh, and then there's just clarity of message, uh, which comes from all the different meetups I do, all the coaching I do. See, one of the greatest gifts that I have, and everyone you know appreciates the this you know, giving away for free everything that I give away for free, is I'm also learning one really valuable thing that a lot of people you know of my caliber of speak, you know, kind of the six figure speakers out there, the guys that bring it down. What they're missing by only doing six-figure speeches and not helping people for free is they don't know what people are listening for. Mm. See, you know, I, I made a major shift. My mentor, Blaine Bartlett, said, David, you know, quit worrying about what people, how many people are listening to you. Start figuring out what people are listening for. And if you can, you know, deliver your strong signal to a wider spectrum of what people are listening for, now you're in a big ball game. And how so- do you- Oh, sorry. Yeah, that that and so, but I, that's why I do all the free stuff I do. I appreciate that. And so, how do you, how do you integrate that with what you truly think, feel, and believe? Because it's like what people are listening for, but yet you want to stay authentic in in what you are communicating. So, how do so you? I'm not telling them what they want to hear. I'm talking about what they want to hear with my frequency. Gotcha. Right. So if so, if uh, BPO is a big issue that people are listening for, business process outsourcing because there's a shortage in labor. Now I'll apply what I know to BPO, <laughs> but I know people are listening for BPO or they're listening for esports or they're listening for certain things instead of, you know, certain people get up there with the same slides that they're talking about with Marcus Aurelius. And look, I read Think and Grow Rich every day. I am a huge uh, Think and Grow Rich fan, but I'm not quoting Napoleon Hill because people aren't listening for Marcus Aurelius, Napoleon Hill, and Aristotle. I'll bring up Shakespeare only because they are listening for two things. To thy own self be true Mm -hmm. more than ever. And the stage theory, the whole world is your stage. So that's what people are listening for right now. You know, I just had it. You guys weren't here yet. I had a cybersecurity guy wrote Cyber Crisis, Eric. And, you know, here's like a total geeky technology guy. 
totally articulate, has a beautiful studio like you guys with all the equipment, everything. And I'm thinking to myself, see, every single professional should understand the stage theory. Shakespeare's right. The whole world is our stage, even if you're some you know geeky cybersecurity crisis guy. Hmm. You got one? Oh. I do. Yeah. Uh, Dave, how do you particularly know that the Shakespeare, because I, I was listening to um, your Friday training, I believe it was last week, and you, you mentioned the Shakespeare quotes, both of those, multiple times. And I had never heard you say that, which is surprising because I've been studying you for years. Um, when did you know to start saying that, even though it was always in your repertoire? So stage there, I've been talking about <clears throat> a lot. But I very rarely say that, you know, Shakespeare was right. The whole world is your stage. Uh, you know, I say that very infrequently. But I've been teaching stage theory. Capture, modify, amplify, and perpetuate. And you've probably heard that, Alan. Yeah. Um, so what happened was um, I had an interview with someone. And they, they said to me, Shakespeare, you know, is the best quote they've ever heard, most applicable today. And that's to thy own self be true. And it resonated with me, like, unbelievably. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm talking about, authenticity, about finding your own, finding your own frequency. You've heard me say that before, yeah. find your frequency. I think you guys have even asked on, on our session, what does that mean, <laughs> find yeah. your frequency? To thy own self be true. And so when I made the tie-in with stage theory and, and to thine own self be true, two of the major things of building a brand, right, it clicked into me. This is what people are listening for. It's going to resonate much more. Even when I speak now, I may put a picture up of Shakespeare behind me and say, hey, I know this guy lived a long time ago. If you don't recognize him, his name's William Shakespeare, but he has two pieces of advice for 2022, and I want you to hear me. Number one, to thy own self be true, and two, the whole world is your stage. You mm -hmm. can't fathom the size, scope, and scale of your audience and start off a speech that way that I will talk about, you know, finding your frequency, strengthening your signal, your spectrum, and clarifying your message. Dave, what's your take on, Alan and I had this conversation. Uh, Alan suggested a book called Peak Performance for me, and I listened to the book. And it, one of the things they talked about was how some prolific authors or speakers or coaches would literally take an hour or two, and they would just go for a walk. And they would use that time to just let their subconscious mind work. And I asked Alan about that. And he said, I think my subconscious mind is just working. Like it kind of just works throughout the day when I'm doing my things. What is your take on taking that hour of solitude and just using that to prime your subconscious mind? My thought on that is you don't understand the unwinding routine. Anyone that it's like people who vacation for six weeks because they need to go off the grid. They don't understand vacationing every day. Mm -hmm. See, the unwinding routine provides you six to eight hours of no interference between you or less interference between you and what you're connected to and through to receive those downloads. So there's no reason to take an extra hour during uh, the activity you get paid for and the activity you don't get paid for, the activity of being awake compared to the activity of being asleep. So if you utilize the unwinding routine correctly, <clears throat> not only will you put your body in a better position to recover so you can have biceps like Alan, but you will also clear the interference so that you can receive the downloads like Kevin. Can you just remind us of the unwinding? Yeah. So my tomorrow starts today. Every uh, night at 9 p.m. is the start of my day. Doesn't mean I wake up at 9 p.m. I'm actually unwinding with 67 degree weather, 
certain type of blankets, pillows, and beds. No negative energy, no drugs, alcohol, or anything that's going to create any type of interference for when the exhaustion of utilizing as much of my energy as I can during the day to leave nothing left in the tank relieves itself so that my body goes into recovery mode, my mind, body, and soul together receive the downloads with no interference of alcohol, drugs, negative thoughts, worry, fear, you know, all the different things that people do themselves, even electronic interference by leaving lights on, you know, you know, TVs on, things that can completely interfere with what people go on walks for, a download. And when you refer to a download, are you do you believe that your subconscious is connecting dots and then bringing it to your conscious or do you believe you're actually downloading from source energy? So I think we're always connected to and through source. During the day, there's many more interferences from what, what we're connected to and through. We are a beacon, right? We, we, we get why your health is so important is when you're healthy, you get as many wishes a day as you can make. When you're unhealthy, you only have one wish. <laughs> so when we make a wish, we're making a request from the ultimate, you know, source and the determinative upon the wish, how much interference do we have between that wish and ourselves and how clear defined and balanced was that wish? So for me, I'm always connected to and through the greatest source of light, love and lessons, but activities during the day interfere with being able to download enough information uh, in order to manifest you know, at the rate of instantaneous, uh, you know, manifestation, it's the interference that's stopping it. And so the interference results in pain, setbacks, failures, mistakes, all during my waking hours, the faster I learn it, every time I learn it, it clears interference and I receive the, the, the truth. Are downloads just your intuition? Yeah. So how do you know the difference between, cause this is something I'm understanding now because i actually feel like i can tap into my intuition which is relatively new for me believe it or not Dave. but <laughs> how do you know the difference between an intuitive download and a thought well they're they're both the same right a thought is an interpretive into intuition so when you're having a thought you put analysis to a thought because it becomes at a conscious level see the speed of thought still moves even at a conscious level moves faster than the speed of light than, than us. So for example, if I tell all three of us right now, go back a thousand years in your, in your thoughts and think of something, we're instantaneously a thousand years in the past. And if I say, hey guys, let's all three get a thought from a thousand years from now, all of us see little green aliens on Mars or whatever. We're there, right? Those are thoughts. And intuition is the truth we haven't put the analysis into it. Now the body's even much slower at the conscious level. If I said, let's go back a thousand years in time, we'd have a difficult time doing so. If I say, let's go ahead in a thousand years in the future together, <laughs> we'd have a difficult time doing so. But our thoughts takes, that proves that, you know, our thoughts move faster than the speed of light. That's why I practice focus, refocus. That's why I practice thoughtfulness so that I'm clearing the interference that's slowing down uh, what we do. And so in essence, though, the analysis of thought over intuition is important because that's what allows us to materialize it slow enough to the speed of light. See, when that that's how we can make it real. So if Jeff Bezos is in his garage and he, he has an intuition that he could be the richest man on earth, some type of feeling, right, that he he's limiting himself, <laughs> then he creates thoughts 
with his own skills, knowledge, and desire to analyze doing that, even though other people laugh at him and create interference. You know, he's selling books in his garage 25 years ago. And even in his own mind, he has doubts and fears. See, all of those are thoughts. The intuition is I can be the best that I can be. I, I have potential to be unlimited potential. That's a that's an intuition. A thought is how are you going to get there? Dave, uh, Bezos in 94 wanted investment, um, asked for 20 grand for equity and was told like, what's the internet, right? And it's like, if they had invested, it would have been, you know, the best investment they've ever made. When someone knows, they know that they know that they know that they know that, th- that something's possible and probable for them. How, how do they... How do they take advice from others effectively when that advice is not predicated on what you're connected to? Closed minds and open minds. So it's okay. Advice that's not aligned with yours is okay because it allows you to either confirm or deny the advice. Right? So Jeff Bezos had no clue that he was going to have the largest marketplace in the world. He was trying to sell books online and then he was going to add additional products. He had no idea way back then how and what he could be. He knew the internet was huge and that it was unlimited what he could sell and to who he could sell it to, but he had no idea what it would look like today, correct? Right. right. So if people were telling him things that were not aligned, synergistic or supplementary to his belief, he would analyze it and take it like a grain of sand, a handful of sand and say, thank you so much for caring about me and giving me your advice, but my thoughts tell me this, that my intuition is correct. When you say thoughts, though, sometimes fear disguises itself as intuition. Of course, yeah. So how, how do you know when that's happening with you, Dave? There are four steps in a den of, right? To, to practice ending fear, there's four steps. One, practice identifying fear. So I analyze, do I have a need to be right, a need to be offended, a need to be separate, inferior, superior, anxious, frustrated, angry, guilty, worried? Those are just fear-based thoughts. Then what I do is if I identify one of those things, I stop and breathe, right? But I don't do it for an hour. I don't go for a walk for an hour. I just breathe through my nose, out through my mouth. Then I remind, recollect, and remember what I'm connected to and through by utilizing the five daily practices, which I also send out to everyone, david at dmelter.com, david at dmelter.com. I remind myself, recollect, and remember what I want today personally experientially, giving and receiving wise, who can help me, who I can help, how best I can get it done with the lens of productivity, accessibility, and gratitude, understanding and being a student in my calendar with the activity I planned, I don't have planned and my sleep, prioritizing my now with the activity I get paid for or not paid for, but prioritizing by what's important to me according to my what, my who, and my how and then applying my why in the right trajectory, not in the wrong trajectory of what I don't want, what's missing, or what other people want for me. Dave, one of the things that you've really helped me with is forgiveness and just allowing people to live their lives. And just like you always say, I pray for somebody's happiness. Like that's my thing is I I just pray for their happiness. What was the deeper understanding that brought that to the surface for you versus what you used to think? Like, how do you actually, I know one time we were talking about, I think you said something along the lines of, can you forgive somebody who murdered somebody else? And Al and I were like, I don't know how to feel about that. Like, how did you get to that level 
of empathy and forgiveness? So understanding the great chain of feeding, right? So once I determine, you know, whether somebody has a closed mind or an open mind, whether somebody uh, is feeding me or not feeding me or bleeding me, then I can go ahead and go to understanding, right? And forgiveness, and then be able to pray for their happiness, knowing what? That utility of firing someone from your life is praying for their happiness and in, in, in firing them. But if you attack them and fire them and say, hey, you know, you're a waste, you're this, you're a murderer, you're this, I never want to see you again, you're fired. That's different than saying, hey, you know, I don't like who I am around you, right? I'm trying to understand what you did and I forgive you and I pray for your happiness, but I'm not going to be around you anymore. That's different. <laughs> Do you explicitly say that in some cases or do, you, or do you just disconnect on your own and solve that's, that's falling away. Right. So if you don't explicitly say it and the nice thing about how uh, much activity there is on earth today, it's so much easier to allow people to fall away because they're so distracted. You know, in the old days, you know, people would obsess on it right. and it, you know, and it would be so difficult. You know, people would keep calling. People don't even notice if I don't text them back anymore or call them back. You know, I try to call everybody and text everyone back, uh, but sometimes I miss it. But in the old days, I, I look, for example, and say, oh, my gosh, if, I, if you know, I didn't call my sister back, she would call me like eight times. Does anything matter? But there's so much else going on in her life between TikTok, Instagram, her, you know, all the different data feeds. It's so easy to let people to fall away and they don't even notice. But, you know, there are certain people that you just don't want in your life because they are bleeding you. 80% of our time is spent with people that are bleeding us. 80% of our resources, our energy, our values put into people bleeding us. If we could relieve that, utilizing the great chain of feeding and move it to the people that feed us, the people that feed us will feed us twice as much. And the exponential result is extraordinary. So Dave, you and I know we got to go in a minute here. Um, so I want to respect your time. 80% of the people in our life are bleeding us, but you've- No, 80% of your energy is spent towards people that are bleeding us. Okay, the squeaky wheels, right? So, mm -hmm. but for you, you've been proactively changing that. So what yeah. is your percentage, do you think, guess, guessing-wise? I've probably switched it to 70% of my time is spent feeding people who feed me, and 30% of my time is spent either letting people fall away or, or with people who bleed me still. Okay. Remember, new people arise and, and it takes time to figure out if they bleed you. Yeah. Have you shortened that window? Yeah. Figuring that, and that's what the, the um, open minds versus closed minds. Yeah. Is these different techniques, daily practices help me, yep. knowing yep. my values. And of course, the open-ended question guide that I'll give to everybody, David at emailter.com has, I'm just telling you, the e easiest thing that's changed my life is asking someone, hey, how are you? And then listening to how they are or or. Like, I, let me give you a good example of a closed mind. There's like a $10 million house on, on the boardwalk down from mine. And there's a guy sitting and he's always by himself. You know, he doesn't rent it out. Like, you know, and he's sitting on the deck and he has his ear pods in. And, you know, respectfully, though, I smile at him and wave. This is an open-ended question, by the way, to smile at someone and wave that you don't know. Right. It's less intrusive. He, he looked right in my eyes, didn't even smile back. Like, didn't even smile back, right? Didn't acknowledge, right? And 
at first I had the need to be offended. Then I took minutes and moments to stop, drop and roll. And I felt good about myself. And I felt what understood where he was at. He has a closed mind. And I prayed for his happiness because he's obviously very unhappy. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would have wasted And Look, talk about bleeding. I, in the in the past, I would have kept walking and held on to that and been offended and be like, what a dick, you know? Then it, And like all this negative energy, this is right. what I'm talking about where people spend 80% of their time. Right. When instead my mind went to happiness and forgiveness. And, you know, and here's the funny thing. When I came back down the other side, uh, you know, the other way, he was still on the deck. Now he was angry and mad and he was yelling at someone on the phone all by himself. And I'm thinking, I pray for his happiness. You know, like all that blessing in his life and he's so unhappy and he's spending 80, 90% of his time on people that bleed him, you know, where somebody that would have fed him and did feed him for free, a beautiful blessing of a smile and a wave. He just resisted. That, uh, that's, you've given me a lot of great advice, but I think that right there, that's, that's big. That's big. The, the, the chain of feeding and bleeding, I kind of understand now and how much that would have perpetuated if you let it bother you, let it bother him, and then talk about it later about this guy. He's written to my wife and say, I never even said mentioned to my wife, right? And she was walking right next to me because then you're venting to her and then she's like, yeah, he's in, you're agitating. It, it just goes on and on. And this is how 80% of our time is spent, you know, literally feeding people that bleed us. And then we wonder why we're not fulfilled or not achieving our goals. Yeah, it's powerful. Creating an appearance between us and everything we're connected to and through, including other people. That's what we're doing. Dave, fire as always. We love you, my friend. We appreciate you. So grateful for you. All right, man. Thank you for keep doing this. This is the most valuable uh, time that I spent. My two all-star big bicep buddies, they're here. <laughs> Kevin and Alan, please, the Next Level University, reach out to them. They know their stuff as well. They're empowering others to empower others to be happy. Part of my mission. Thank you both for always being there, sharing my content and doing such good deeds. I appreciate both of you. We appreciate Thank you, Dave. Back, Dave. Appreciate you. You got it. Take care. All righty. That was it. It was office hours for Wednesday. We're rocking and rolling. This is my dead day between my anniversary and my wife's birthday. I want to send my love to her. I am blessed to have her as my purpose and my passion. Uh, I adore her and uh, celebrate her. Be a celebrant, not a celebrity. And remember, most importantly, everyone, be kind to your future self. It is more Good News Wednesday. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Have a great night.